Good evening, church family, and a warm welcome again to McLean Presbyterian. My name is James Forsyth, and it's my privilege week by week to share in the scriptures with you, to study God's word together and understand more of his will for for our lives here today. Tonight we do that by looking, uh, turning to Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to turn there with me, you can pull out a pew Bible from the rack in front of you and find this on page 978. Ephesians 5, I'm going to read verse 1 through to the end of the chapter. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask once again that you would draw near to us and be our teacher. Your word is perfect, uh, and yet our understanding of it (laughs) is not. And so we need the help of your spirit to to be in our midst, to be that, that that great helper that you've promised him to be, so that we might understand more of of your goodwill, both for our eternities and indeed for our lives today. We come seeking the grace of Christ, the one that we have just sung to, the one who even now is alive. Father, in him we have resurrection hope, and we pray that you would bless this time, that we might live in light of that great hope to your honor and to your glory. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're in the final week of our sermon series, In His Image. And honestly, I've been encouraged. It's been encouraging to see how our church family has pulled together and had some great discussions uh, over the last couple of months. I feel like our our maturity as a church family has grown as we have wrestled through some some hard topics together. And keep talking in our community groups, uh, in our Q&A even tonight. Uh, We need a community to help apply the concepts that we discuss together to the details and the messiness of our, of our individual, individual day-to-day lives. So let's make this just the start of an ongoing conversation. We're going to finish the series tonight, God's Good Design for Life Together, by talking about two terms that we've avoided throughout the entire series. We're here tonight to talk about headship and submission. Now, why have we avoided these terms throughout the series? Not just because they can be controversial in the life of the church, but because the series has deliberately tried to be about humanity as a whole. We've tried to take a broad view, have a broad lens to understand the implications of the fact that we have all been made in the image of God, 
Then we sought to look, look together at what it means for all women to be made in the image of God and then for all men to be made in the image of God. We've sought to grasp God's compelling vision for all of us as we live in his image, irrespective of our marital status or our age or our, or our personality type. And that's actually why we've avoided these two terms, headship and submission. Why? Because they aren't broad in their application. They actually have a very narrow focus. Here's the idea. In the Bible, headship and submission are not used to describe all male-female relationships. Let me say that again. In the Bible, headship and submission are not used to describe all male-female relationships. Rather, they are used to describe God's good design for two particular areas, namely the home and the church. They don't have broad application. They have a specific application to these two areas, to male-female relationship in the home and in the church. And it's important as we note this, just as we get going into this topic, because there are therefore lots of areas in which headship and submission don't apply. For example, they don't apply in general friendships. Okay, so brothers in this church, you better not look at the sisters in this church and think you have any authority over them. They haven't taken vows to you as husband. They haven't taken vows to you as an elder. And so you don't have any authority over them. This isn't a patriarchy. Just because you're a man doesn't mean you have authority. Or even in the marketplace, for example, workers. Um, it doesn't matter whether your boss is male or female. You better do what they tell you to do, more or less when they tell you to do it, because they rightly have authority over you. No. Headship and submission have a narrow focus to describe God's good plan for these two areas, for life in the home and life in the church. And so we're going to look at these two terms together under three broad headings. First of all, I want to look at the context of headship and submission. Then I want to look at the content of the two words themselves. But for finally considering very briefly the, the consequence of what, what would happen if we could really live, live this out. Let's start then, point one, the context of headship and submission. And honestly, two things we need to note in context, and two things that you've heard me say again and again throughout this series, you're probably fed up of hearing me say them if you've been here uh, for the last six weeks. First of all, we need to remember as we move to these terms that men and women have been made equal in the image of God. Men and women are absolutely equal uh, in the image of God. They have shared value, shared dignity, shared worth. One is no more important or gifted than the other merely by virtue of their gender. And so men, throughout this series, we've, we've tried to, to remind ourselves of this truth and, and, and resolved to honor our sisters as uh, equal image bearers. And to push back against either a cultural pressure or perhaps our own sinful tendencies to demean or objectify women in any way. Likewise, women, we've resolved to honor our brothers as equal image bearers. And resolved to push back against any cultural pressure or sinful tendencies of our own to want to be dismissive of men or to demonize them in any way. Men and women are equal in the image of God. Second, though, when it comes to context for heads of submission, as we've said ad nauseum, they are equal, but that does not mean that they are identical. Men and women are not identical. This is part of God's good design. Honestly, I would, I would think make a case to say that men and women are, are more similar than they are different. 
Uh, there's something about the shared human experience that very much unites us all. And yet there are differences between men and women. God has designed it to be so. And rather than trying to blur these distinctions, we celebrate them. Why? Because the differences tell us something about God. In other words, there is something about the nature of God that masculinity reveals and something about the nature of God that femininity reveals. Now, of course, we understand, don't we? We've just said uh, equal in the image of God and fully in the image of God. It's not like women are 50% in the image of God and men are 50% in the image of God and put us together and that's 100. No, each are, are fully in the image of God. And yet, masculinity and femininity do tend to emphasize different aspects of God's nature. So imagine with me for a second, let's make this concrete. Imagine with me for a second um, that you are God, okay? We're in DC, this probably isn't hard for us to do, okay? Imagine that you are God and you are, you are unimaginably and wildly and beautifully complex. And you decide to create the world and you decide that you want your invisible attributes to be seen in the very creation of the world, Romans 1 verse 20. You want your nature, your character, who you are to be understood in the very way that you've made the world. You want to paint it on the very canvas of creation. So how would you communicate just in the very way that you make the world? Uh, that's your, your goal, as Romans 1.20 tells us. How would you communicate that you're the kind of God who both pursues and invites? How would you paint those complex ideas on the canvas of creation? Well, you'd make men and you'd make women. There's something about redeemed masculinity that tenderly initiates. There's something about redeemed femininity that warmly welcomes and receives. Or say, for example, you wanted to paint on the canvas of creation, uh, show the world that you're both honorable and beautifully mysterious. How would you paint that on the canvas of creation? Well, you'd create men and you'd create women. Something about men that is stubbornly steady. Something about women that is beautifully nuanced and layered. In crisis, as I meet with people in crisis uh, week in and week out, people always want to know two things. They always want to know, is God going to show up and does he care? Is he going to show up and does he care? How would you paint that on the canvas of creation? Well, you'd create men and you create women. There's something about redeemed masculinity that says he'll show up and there's something about redeemed femininity that says he cares. Now, of course, throughout this series, we've tried to say again and again that we're not being absolute about these things. Of course, women can take initiative and men can be inviting and so on and so forth. But Jim Cofield, a professor at RTS in Orlando, makes the interesting observation that even when functionally the men and women do similar things, there's often a very different energy to it masculine energy or a feminine energy. He illustrates this by going to the research over why men and women become doctors. Did you know that, that men and women become doctors for very different reasons? They, they can both be great doctors, but as they pursue this task, they tend to do so for different reasons. Women, the research show, are primarily motivated by, by altruism, by a desire to care for their patients. Men, on the other hand, are primarily motivated by achievement by the desire to have an impact in the world. Now, those things aren't absolute, but that's what the research shows. That's how things primarily play out. Both can be great, great doctors, but they approach it differently. They bring a different energy to it, a masculine and femi feminine energy to it. Now, why am I saying all of this? I'm saying all of this because the differences between men and women are beautiful and profound 
and even tell us something about our loving God. Rather than blur the lines and just sort of see everyone just as as the same, we celebrate the differences because there are things about God that we would not know were it not for the creation of women. And there are things about God that we would not know were it not for the creation of men. And as we move to this question of how men and women relate in the home and the church, we don't start with We don't start with role and function. So I get up. Hello, I'm James. Sermon begins. Men do all these things. Women do all those things. That's not how the sermon starts. Because we're not just doing some kind of utilitarian division of labor as we talk about men and women. No, we start with purpose and design. We start with the why behind God's plan. The headship and submission will enable us to paint his glory on the canvas of creation. And that is something that's worth our pursuit. That's something that's worth our time. So in that context, against that that why, let's look at the content of the two ideas. As in previous weeks, there's going to be a lot more we could say, but I don't think we should say less than these things. There's more to headship and submission than this, but there's not less. My goal is really just to lay out the categories tell you what they are, give you a sense of what they look like so we can continue the conversation. Point two, the content of headship and submission. Let's begin with headship and here's here's a definition for you. If you're a note taker, you can write this down. Biblical headship is the authority God gives husbands and elders to initiate flourishing in the home and in the church through loving sacrifice. That was a little wordy, so let me say it again. Biblical headship is the authority God gives husbands and elders to initiate flourishing in the home and in the church through loving sacrifice. Let's see this in the home and then in the church. Starting husbands in the home, we can see this definition in Ephesians 5. Look down with you, if you will, at verse 23, where we read, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of of the church. So Christ is being held up as the model, as the one who is head of the church, and in the same way, husbands are uh, head of the wife. Now, to be the head, just like the English term implies, it means to have authority. Now, there's a lot of debate over what it means for a husband to have authority. And honestly, one of the challenges is, do you know that the Bible never explicitly lays it out? Here's authority, here's what it means, here's what it doesn't mean. And unfortunately, (laughs) Paul never does Q&A, right? Um, it just, it's just not how he, how he works. So we don't have a, a very specific list as to what exactly Paul means by authority, but what we do have is what Paul says next. So he says, yes, that husbands have authority, but then look, look at verse 25. See what he says? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, understand, the Bible does not speak about authority in terms of rights, It speaks about it in terms of responsibilities. So having just said you have authority, he says, yes, you have the authority to do what? Well, to love your wife. How? As Christ has loved us. It's not about domination. It's not about rule. And friends, if you have experienced that kind of bullying, domineering, harsh leader in your home or in your church, then I'm sorry. And if they have justified their ungodly behavior in the name of headship, I'm I'm sorrier still. Headship, authority is given in order to 
love. Husbands are to exercise authority by loving their wives as Christ loves us. They've been given authority in order to fulfill that responsibility. So there's a sense in which all men are to live lives of initiative and sacrifice. But the moment that we take vows or the moment that you take a vow uh, to be with one woman as your wife, you become uniquely responsible to live with her in that way. Perhaps it's helpful to think of it in concentric circles. It's good to take initiative and sacrifice at work. It's good in your community. It's good at church. But if you're married, then at the very center of, of your circle, the number one human priority is for you to live this way with your own wife. The goal of this love is given to us in verse 26. Do you see it there? So that your wife might be sanctified cleansed, presented to God without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In other words, the goal is Christ-likeness. You have authority to love your wife in order that she will flourish, in order that she will become all that God has ever intended for her to be. This is really the primary reason why, if you're, if, you're new, if you're new to the church or new to Christianity, this is really the primary reason why we say that believers ought not to marry someone who isn't a believer. Why? Because marriage serves several functions for sure. But the primary one for a believer is growth in Christlikeness. And so if, as a believer, you marry someone who isn't a believer, how can they encourage and promote that kind of Christlikeness in you? We don't say that because of some harsh, bigoted, judgmental spirit, but we say it in terms of, no, we're unable to fulfill the very purpose of a Christian marriage if we're not driving each other to Christ. That's the goal of a husband, Christ-likeness, flourishing, wife becoming all God made her to be. So husbands, um, men, catch the flow of the text with me, okay? Verse 23 says you have authority. Verse 26 says you have authority to love your wife. Uh, sorry, verse 25 says that. Verse 26 says, so that she becomes all that she made, God made her to be. You have authority, verse 23, to love your wife, verse 25, so she becomes all God made her to be, verse 26. Uh, what does this look like? Um, headship means you have the right to do whatever your bride needs to become more like Jesus. That's what it means. You have the right to do whatever your bride needs so that she becomes all God intended her to be. So you have the right to take initiative with her like you would with no other. You have the right, you have the responsibility to set a godly vision for the trajectory of your lives together. Now you understand you don't have that authority to do that with anybody else. Can you just call up one of your friends and say, hey, I'd like to have coffee and talk about the fu- you know, our future together, right? Um, like creepy, weird, not biblical, right? In the context of marriage, you, you have that right, though, to set a godly trajectory for, for your lives, to start family devotions together. You have the right to be the first one to apologize and the right to be the first one to seek peace and the small things like planning date nights and keeping the spark alive. You have the right to sacrifice for her like you do for no other. That means you have the right to do the things she doesn't want to do for her welfare. You have the right to change diapers and carpool kids and help out. You have the right also to do the things that only you can do. Um, Tim Keller calls this tie-breaking authority. 
And I think it's a good application of what we're talking about here. You know, there are times in life, there are times in marriage where you work through something together and you just can't get to a shared conclusion. Sometimes because you actively disagree. Often though, because neither of you knows what to do. So, you know, where should we move to? Should I take this job? Where should we send the kids to school? You know, all these, these sorts of questions. Sometimes you actively disagree. Sometimes neither of you know what to do. In such, such situations, I think it's an appropriate application to, to what Keller calls tie-breaking authority for the husband to lean in and make that decision. Now, as soon as I say that, I want to caveat it in the following ways. You know, in my 17-year marriage, I, this has happened a handful of times. You can count on one hand how many times this has happened. So don't, man, we don't walk into every situation thinking, I've got a trump card, I'm going to get what I want, right? The goal isn't what you want, the goal is Christ-likeness. So this doesn't happen very often. Secondly, see even when it does happen, very often you will use your headship to do what your wife thinks is best. Why? Because depending on the topic, you'll say, I respect her wisdom and her expertise way more than I respect mine on this issue. So I think we should go with her. And then sure, occasionally you might also decide that, that, that Christ has made it clear to you that there is, you, you should go the way that you, that you have thought. So it happens rarely. A lesson, you know, you could count on one time, hands, on one hand, the times it's happened in our 15 years. And it's probably more or less an equal split over when we've gone with Rosie's thoughts and when we've gone with mine. The point is, um, when, when things have stalled, um, men have the authority to get, to get things moving again. That's some of what it looks like. Honestly, the best uh, statement on what it looks like comes from Jesus himself, who is the model of headship. He says in Matthew 20, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Husbands, headship means you have authority to love your wife, so she becomes all God made her to be. Doesn't mean you have come to to be served, but to serve her that she might flourish. Okay, that's headship in the home. Let's think briefly about it in the church. Elders, in the same way that we've, all the things we've just said about husbands, in many ways are applicable in the church. In the same way in the church, elders have been given authority to love this bride so that she becomes all that she was intended to be. Key passages on this would not so much be Ephesians 5, but 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, powerfully 1 Peter chapter 5. Read those texts later on this evening if you want to learn more about, about elders. Again, something similar is, is at play. Men are always called to have lives of initiative and sacrifice, but the moment that they make vows to become elders at this church, they become uniquely responsible for living that way amongst this congregation. So again, if we go back to the concentric circle ideas, the very center for them is, is still their family. Why? Because 1 Timothy 3.5 says that if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? But after that center, the very next ring, before work, before hobbies, before other community, is to be the church. They have the authority to come into this church and love this church so that she becomes all God intended her to be. The authority, what does this look like? To set a godly vision for the church. To know the people in the congregation. To, to pray for them every day. To show up when you need them. To gently point them to Christ in the word. To do whatever it is that this church needs to become all that God made her to be. You know, when I think of headship, um, 
There's two sides to it. On one hand, it's a deeply compelling call. Husbands, the question is, are your wives better off for being married to you? Not, not for being married in general, but are they better off for being married to you? Husbands, there's something in us that deeply wants that to be true. And wives, there's something about that that just doesn't sound so bad, okay? Now, I get it. I've got to be super careful. I'm a man. I'm not a woman. I don't really understand. But having someone who's, who's being told by Christ that their mission in life is to make me flourish, that just doesn't sound so bad. We think about a compelling call for, for elders too. Is this church better off because it's been led by us elders? Don't you want that to be true? I think the members of our church want to be led by men who've made that their mission. On one hand, this is really compelling call, but honestly, on the other hand, headship is also a very demanding call. Christ has given authority because he has made us responsible. And as he has made us responsible, you can be sure that he will also hold us accountable. Jesus cares very much about how his delegated authority is used. Any authority we have has merely just been given to us by him. And he cares very much about how this kind of authority is used. And so, husbands, we know and understand, do we not, that God will come to us and inquire about the welfare of our marriages before he will come to our wives. This is what happens in the Garden of Eden, right after the fall. God shows up and talks to Adam. That's not to say our wives aren't responsible for the welfare of our marriage. It's that we are primarily responsible for the welfare of our marriage. Likewise, elders, Christ will come to us and inquire of us about the welfare of this church before he'll come and talk to our members. Now, are our members responsible for the welfare of the church? Of course they are. But we are primarily responsible. If you rightly understand headship, it should be enough to make you fall on your face. Any sense of lordering it over another is utterly banished when you understand the call of God. And it, uh, what it makes you do is just look for grace. Headship in the home and in the church. Here's the summary. The authority God gives husbands and elders to initiate flourishing in the home and in the church through loving sacrifice. It looks like husbands and elders making their homes and church their first priority, pouring themselves out in love so they become all that God made them to be. Counterpart to this idea of headship is what the Bible calls submission. So let's look at the content of that term for a moment. Submission. Here's a, here's a definition, not as wordy as the last one. Biblical submission is the call God gives wives and church members to willingly follow their husbands and elders as they, namely the husbands and elders, follow Christ. The call God gives wives and church members to willingly follow their husbands and elders as they follow Christ. Wives and church members, not just female members, all church members. At its simplest level, at the level that it's easiest for me to grasp and get my, my mind around, submission simply means to willingly follow. That's what submission means. Get this definition from Jesus himself. Do you remember back in Luke chapter 2? It's this great story where Jesus is a wee boy and he travels with his family from Nazareth up to Jerusalem. 
and Mary and Joseph and the whole clan are there and they have a they have a great time you know a good time had by all and then it comes time to go back from Jerusalem to Nazareth and so the journey begins and halfway home Mary and Joseph have this like home alone moment right where Mary looks at Joseph and says, you got Jesus? And Joseph looked back and said, I thought, I thought you had Jesus. And then they both say, well, I thought, I thought he was with some other relative. And, you know, the, you know, they circle the wagons and basically find out Jesus is nowhere to be seen. And so they speed back to Jerusalem just like we'd speed back to the mall, right? Isn't it encouraging that Mary and Joseph did this kind of stupid thing, right? And when they get there, they find Jesus. And after a little back and forth, um, they all head back to Nazareth together as verse 51 tells us Jesus was submissive to them submissive to them he he willingly followed his parents back from Jerusalem to Nazareth and wives this is the kind of idea that's uh, in our passage here in Ephesians 5 actually repeated throughout our passage look first at verse 22 read wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord willingly follow your own husbands as you'd willingly follow the Lord. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, as the church willingly follows Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The call is to willingly follow your husband. Again, not all men, just the man that you have made vows to follow as he follows Christ. Now, of course, there are limits to this ability to willingly follow. Willingly following submission, it can't mean sin. If you're ever faced with the option between following your husband or following Christ, you follow Jesus every single time. Secondly, a limit is that it doesn't mean uh, submission, being willing following, doesn't mean that you should be sinned against either. It doesn't mean that you should tolerate uh, your husband's sin against you in, in the name of submission. No, he has been given authority, but his authority is limited to serve you for your welfare. And so when he sins against you in small ways, yes, forgive him. But if it's in, in large ways, then we've got to do something about that. And the church stands ready to come alongside you and, and walk through that kind of challenging, messy situation with you. Submission doesn't mean sin. It doesn't mean being sinned against. And also, um, I, I feel the need to say really practically, you know what also doesn't mean agreeing with your husband on everything? Which frankly, just isn't that good news? Because if that were a command, it would be completely impossible. It would be completely impossible. Jesus isn't giving us a command that is just never going to be able to be accomplished even by his grace. No, marriage is a dynamic partnership where together we figure out what it means to follow Christ. In fact, the very fact that it's not good for man to be alone presupposes that we need input and correction from time to time. No, what is submission? It's a disposition. I think that's the best word for it. A disposition to willingly follow your husband as he follows Christ. What does this look like? Friends, I think if you're here with us last week, I think it looks like last week's sermon specifically applied to your marriage. So last week we said in general that women have this ability to complete and to collaborate. And I think submission looks like applying those ideas specifically to your marriage. So you willingly follow your husband's initiation with completion. (laughs) More concretely, um, when your husband suggests that you do family devotions, 
help wrangle the kids, offer your own wisdom, and encourage him to keep doing it, even though it's really clear that nobody's paying attention, right? The beauty of family devotions is they'll remember that you did it. You'll, they'll remember that Jesus was important to you. That's, that's what we're aiming for. Um, you uh, follow, willingly follow your husband's initiation with completion. When he comes to apologize to you, um, I guess you're easy to apologize to. Have you ever thought of that? It's actually a gr- it, this is a great question for all of us, men, men and women, but you know, addressing wives particularly. Have you ever thought about what it's like to apologize to you? What do you tend to do? You tend to double down a little bit, like, hmm, that's right, you're sorry, <laughs> yeah. Um, and you should be sorry, both for the thing you're apologizing for and for the 17 other things that you did in and around the incident that you're apologizing to me for, right? Um, I want to be, especially for my children, um, I want to be easy to repent to. That's a goal. I want to be easy to repent to. And I think husbands and wives, we, we want to be like that. Back to the point, wives, I think you will only follow when you move toward him as he moves toward you. So that together you're able to work through things for the sake of Christ. After completion, completion, I think this is like completion. Um, Third sermon of the day. Here we go. Um, After completion, I think we'll only follow following, it looks like, um, responding to sacrifice with completion. Um, so proactively applying the questions. Remember the questions we discussed last week? Um, you know, who needs help? What's incomplete? How can I bring health using my own uh, nurture and strength? Apply those questions to your marriage. So where does your husband need help? It might be responsibilities that you divide up together to make life work. It might be bigger things so that he can go in Christ. Ask, where is your husband incomplete? In my marriage, I think this plays out in two ways. I think it plays out in just weaknesses that I have, but also in the sin that I have. So Rosie brings a completion to a lot of my weaknesses. An example would be, you know that every day of her life on a scale of one to 10, Rosie is a six in happiness. I am a two or an eight, okay? So she brings a steady demeanor that's really healthy for our family fold. She is strong where I am weak. On the other hand, when it comes to sin, um, I thought about how I could say this diplomatically. Here's what I came up with. Rosie is ready to appropriately highlight my blind spots. (laughs) Did I get it done? Okay. Third question, how can you bring health using your powers of nurture and strength? Wives, remember just what we spoke about last week about the disproportionate impact you have uh, and influence you have over your husband. you think he's a loser, the world thinks he's awesome, he thinks he's a loser. You think he's awesome, but the world thinks he's a loser, he thinks he's awesome. So just remember that and be kind to him and bear with him and believe in him and advise him and correct him and point him to Christ. Marriage is a partnership, so we want to be in this mess together, encouraging one another on the way. Submission in the home. Submission in the church, church members, challenging for us to understand that this idea of submission is is applied to to all church members, not just women, men, and women. It's applied to all church members, explicitly so in Hebrews 13, verse 17. We read, obey your leaders and submit to them, willingly follow them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account 
Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You see the, the tenor of that verse? It's saying, friends, understand that your elders have been charged to work for your spiritual welfare. Their job is your health. So make their job easy. That, that, that's a good idea. It makes sense for you to make their job. They should be easy to follow and you should be, in a sense, easy to lead. Now, of course, that doesn't mean sin or be sinned against or agree on everything, but rather have a disposition where you will willingly follow where they lead. What does that look like? More than we have time for tonight. But let's just, just start, start with your membership vows. The vows you made when you became a member of this church. You promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability. So come to worship, okay? Um, make that a priority. Get involved in a community ministry. Serve in, in our mission. Pour yourself out with your time and your treasure and your talents so that the next 75 years of this church will be as healthy as the last. You've promised to submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and to study its purity and its peace. So be a people, let's be a people who, who extinguish gossip, who promote unity, who throughout it all pray for your leaders because our needs are great. Submit yourself to godly leaders who have themselves submitted themselves to Christ. That's, that's the idea of biblical submission in the church. Summary, biblical submission is the call God gives wives and all church members to willingly follow their husbands and elders as they, the husbands and elders, follow Christ. It's a disposition of, of happy followership, gladly following our leaders as they follow Jesus. A partnership where we work with our husband and elders to make marriage and the church all that God has made them to be. Consequence, really quickly, just... 30 seconds, what would it look like if we lived this way? Um, I, hope you, I hope you see how these two ideas fit together. The headship and submission, they don't fit together like harsh domination and, and servile subservience. That's not how it works. These two ideas are, 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 are beautifully complementary. The theologians call this teaching complementarity, how... Um, husbands and wives are distinct from one another and yet dependent upon one another. A beautiful picture of, of interdependence. The same with elders and church members. They are distinct from one another, but they are dependent upon one another. It's a beautiful picture of, of interdependence. Where together we are seeking Christ, distinct from one another, yet dependent upon one another. That's complementarity. And honestly, it is, the Bible says, it is the path of joy. It is the path of joy. Um, God's design isn't right because it works. But because it's right, it does work. It does work. Men and women flourish together, each bringing our unique gifts and abilities and offering them to each other that together we might be whole. Husbands and elders who are easy to follow because they use their authority to love their wives in church so that they become all that they were made to be. Wives and church members who willingly follow in glad partnership, helping where needed, completing what lacks, bringing health through their own gifts and strength. And to the extent that we live in that complementary design, we will in new ways uh, paint the glory of God on the canvas of creation. 
And I think that will be a life that we'll look back on without regrets. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful once again for this time together in your word and for the way in which you have saved us in Christ and taught us how to follow Christ for the sake of your glory and for our own joy. And I'm grateful for this church. Father, um, it's really easy to talk about uh, being the kind of church that doesn't shy away from hard topics. It's not always so easy to actually be that church. So I thank you for the conversations we've been able to have together, the conversations that have sprung up in community groups and, and in our congregation, and how you are maturing us as a church family by enabling us to, to work through some, some hard and, and important questions uh, together. I'm grateful for it, and I give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.